Hey, Carl. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Jason. <laughs> let's have a let's have a merry episode here. I don't know when people are listening. All of the other podcasts go on vacation, and we are the only one that actually put out a new episode. So we're we're your only Christmas podcast to listen to. <laughs> and we own it. Okay, well, let's jump into the <laughs> let's jump into the news. So the first one here, I have to click on to get the the title. So this was a this was a Node.js thread. It was a Twitter thread on Node.js. Uh, Node.js uh, 15, the new version, makes seven of my packages obsolete. This is a good thing. So you're a little bit more of the Node and JavaScript guy. So you mm-hmm. tell me what this means. Yeah, so he, there's a whole bunch of, um, well, what ha- ends up happening in the Node world versus like the .NET world. And, and I, I guess this happens a little bit in the .NET world, but like in the Node world, Anything that you want to do, you don't actually write code for. You bring in a package. <laughs> um, it, there was the whole left pad controversy, controversy which we've covered before, and um, but basically, like Node now is as it's maturing, they're adding more and more functionality that they see a lot of people using. So, like the first one here is pretty easy to understand, which is that now set timeout, um, you can await it. So, you know, async await was something um, added not terribly long ago to JavaScript. Um, and t- it came to TypeScript before that, actually, because they had a way of, you know, basically um, transpiling into um, into JavaScript that would let you do like a, um, async await semantics. But anyway, needless to say, it's built into JavaScript now. And now Node.js has added um, await functionality, which is, uh, or in Node.js has added await functionality for set timeout. So you can just say await set timeout, and then it will basically await for one second. So that's just an example of like something really basic that um, it's just available now. You know, you had to add a package for that before. Um, abort controller, which I've I really haven't, um, I haven't really used anything like that. Um, but that's whenever you are aborting web requests, apparently. Um, let me see what else is in here. Aggregate error, uh, p.any. Is that promise.any? Um, what is p.any? Oh, useful when you need the fastest promise. Oh, that's kind of cool. Um, and now there's a promise.any. You know, it's funny because I needed that exact functionality in my code. Now I'm wondering what, <laughs> I, what I use for that. Because on my package tracking website, what I do is I, I go out and I have a whole bunch of um, requesters, you know, go out to like UPS, FedEx. And basically it's whoever whoever can get me an actual answer first is the winner. So I might have to take a look and start utilizing that. Um, so those are some of the examples. So we'll, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. But needless to say, Node is starting to get some of this functionality built in, which is which is great because .NET, like historically, has always come with this giant, you know, uh, framework of libraries, obviously, and then .NET Core sort of split that apart, and and some of that useful functionality comes in separate. Um, so we're just sort of seeing both of those, um, both of those systems sort of coming closer together, where you can pick the amount of functionality you have. You can get really useful things out of the box and then you just bring in packages for things where you're doing something a little less usual. So good to yeah, see. And and one of my frustrations with the JavaScript and Node ecosystem for a long time is like how much things that seem like they should come out of the box like you normally get with .NET is not only a different package, but a different package for pretty much anything that you want to do. So you know, it's not uncommon to see, you know, dozens of packages being pulled in. Mm-hmm. 
you know, this is crazy. So I actually did just pull up my code for this. <laughs> um, I did it manually. <laughs> so I'm literally wrapping some old code in a promise. And then I'm actually looping through the list of uh, trackers, uh, package trackers. And then I am kicking them off. And then whichever one can resolve the promise quicker um, gets, you know, basically wins. So that's it, interesting. Yeah. So it, it looks like node 15 is going to save... I don't know, 20 or 30 lines of code for me and probably probably fix a bug as well. So that kind of that kind of innovation is uh is useful to see. Um okay, next one here, uh GitHub says no cookie for you. Yeah, so a lot of us are familiar with um uh the EU policies requiring that if you're going to use a cookie that they got to put up a banner and as users we hate these banners. Mm-hmm. Um and probably most developers don't really like implementing them either. So the interesting thing is GitHub said to itself, like, we don't like these. What do we have to do to comply with all the laws, but yet find a way to get rid of it? And they're like, well, if we don't have cookies, then we don't need the banner. So that's what they did. They're not uh, using any unnecessary cookies. So I'm a, I am I would assume that there's probably a, a cookie for authentication or Mm-hmm. something like that. But for everything else, they're, they're not tracking anything. They're not sharing anything. And, uh, we can, uh, you know, see improvements in the GitHub experience because of that. So I hated the law, but now I love it. So hopefully more people do this. I'm just waiting for like the prop 65 cancer warnings to start popping up on websites. Cause they're oh boy. It's like one of our products as a website. So, you know, could cause cancer. Yeah, this website can <laughs> cause cancer. Probably <laughs> it could happen. It can happen. Uh, so yeah, that's a, that's the best way to solve it. I love it. Perfect. Um, next one here, how I get a computer science degree in three months for less than $5,000. Yeah. I I know, you know, a fair amount of people in this industry, uh, that are really good developers and just don't happen to have a degree. And unfortunately there are certain opportunities that it doesn't matter what their actual skill or value that they're bringing to the table are still judged by a lack of degree. Um, what I thought was really cool about this article is, um, this person, you know, had started, uh, going to a university, uh, um, I think he dropped out in about 2012 and then had a successful career, uh, but then kind of hit some of those roadblocks and was like, you know, how can I get that degree without necessarily having to suffer through some of the issues that made him drop out in the first place? And uh, he had learned about this university that as long as you pass the test, um, you get the credit. And it was kind of a time-based system. So the longer it took you to do it, the more you paid. So of course he kind of, was put two and two together and was like, well, if I, you know, I've been doing this for, you know, eight to 10 years. Um, I have a a wealth of experience. I could probably do these pretty quickly. And that's exactly what he did is he just did these as fast as possible. And between um, the specific university that he went to, as well as I think there was another online course that was from a, uh, a different website, Mm -hmm. but counted, he was able to do it for, just under $5,000. And I think that's a really cool way to kind of hack the system and maybe get you out of that unnecessary roadblock that could prevent you from, uh, you know, getting a promotion that you want or a dream job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They were pretty nice about like letting them transfer in certain credits. So that was really cool to see. And then, you know, I could see people looking at this and saying, 
hey, this was, you know, like him hacking the system or whatever, and maybe it was a waste of time, or there's probably a lot of different, you know, sort of negative comments you could think about this. But, you know, looking at this, there were classes he took around data management foundations, structured query language, um, even American politics and U.S. Constitution. Like, you know, there's, there's, there is this sentiment that I've been picking up on Twitter where, and I think it's, I think they're, I think it's part of inclusion where they're trying to say, Hey, if you don't have a college degree, you know, you can still, you know, contribute just as much. And and I do agree with that. I, I want to be very clear there, but I, I don't want to necessarily agree with the corollary, which is like, you know, your computer science degree is useless. Um, and I think some of the classes that I mentioned here are, are what I find useful. So I think, you know, even though you can do, um, you know, like use an array or collection or whatever in your programming language of choice, and you're able to get by like data management foundations, like that kind of thing is useful. Like I learned in school, you know, just different types of data structures and performance trade-offs. And it's useful to understand that and understand some of the the math behind like what can slow down your application and even big O notation, you know, can still be useful these days. And then I also took classes around information and like data manipulation and trying to, you know, like sort of weaponized data and, and, you know, to, to show something and like all of that stuff has really stuck with me. And I think has been really key to, um, you know, a lot of decisions I've made along the way. And so I don't want to downplay the value of, of some of these things. Like, sure. He's been successful in this industry for, you know, eight or 10 years, like you mentioned, that's great. And all this did was kind of fill in some of those gaps and makes him a better programmer going forward. That, I mean, that's, that's my take on this. And I, so I think it was, I think it was a worth, I think it was a worthwhile endeavor. I, I, I applaud him for, for putting in the work and, uh, and making this happen. I mean, I think, I think a big part of it, he, I'm sure like, because of all the crazy data collection he was doing here, all the details and all that. I mean, it was definitely, he was looking to create this blog post, but you know, whatever, what is, the motivation to, to, to do this doesn't really matter. The fact is he went through it. Um, he did it and it's done. And I'm sure that he learned a lot from it. Yep. I mean, the, when I look back at my education, um, I actually did a, also a non-traditional path, but I went to both a tech school as well as a university and, uh, you know, each approach has their pros and cons. I, I really appreciated in the tech school, uh, the very hands-on, you know, I got my hands on a language and I was actually implementing code pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And in university, I found it kind of frustrating at the time where you didn't touch code nearly as often. It was so much theory, but because I kind of had those two back to back, I was actually able to kind of match up. Okay. Here's the implementation and here's the theory and here's where, where they meet up and make each other better. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like you said, you know, it's, you know, filling in those gaps in ways that he probably couldn't imagine otherwise. I remember designing circuits with NAND gates and then uh, learning assembler (laughs) and then learning C and then learning like Java and C sharp and some of these other languages. Like, um, yeah, (laughs) I mean, uh, you can do really cool things that uh, once you realize that how. Uh, SQL is essentially set theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been able to take a complicated uh, SQL query, kind of map that to what the equivalent set theory is, and do some simplification upon it, and actually made my you know queries run faster. 
because yeah, that, I was able to apply the math to the practice. That's actually a really good point. Cause I was, I've been reading up on the cosmos DB documentation and they actually start with the, they basically described to you how the sets work and then mm-hmm. they show you the query language. So it's kind of interesting that you mentioned that cause that, that's the approach that they took. It was obviously, it, it looks like an academic wrote <laughs> like the sort of the intro. It's like here, you understand set theory. So here's how this works <laughs> and then dives into like, here's how you write these queries. Um, and I'm really terrible at both, so I'm struggling, but, uh, but I'm, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Um, and then this next article here, Facebook criticizing Apple's iOS 14 privacy changes as a hypocrisy. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, the background on this is, uh, during WWDC in 2020, which was last June, I believe maybe July, either way, last late spring, early summer, Apple announced that in iOS 14, there was going to be a new privacy feature uh, called app tracking transparency. And basically what that does is allows op, uh, users to you know opt out of some of these unique advertising identifiers mm-hmm. and uh, make it look like they're more anonymous and you can't correlate one user across applications as easy. Um, obviously, since Facebook is uh, a very large advertising business, they would love that capability. Um, so this is really where a business practice bumps into a technology change. Mm-hmm. And while personally, I'm always up for increased privacy, um, you know, one of the things that there's a, you know, I mean, well, this is a kerfuffle now, it always seems that when there's changes like this, a lot of industries kind of, um, make a fuss about it. Mm-hmm. But in the end, they find other ways to do the same thing that they were always looking to do. Yeah, maybe. And while I'm not, or, or well, they, I'm not or sure they how easy. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure how easy that is in this case. Um, but I, I doubt that Facebook is going to have a long-term financial issue with this. And from what I also understand is Google has something very similar already in Android. Okay. So, yes, they are trying to make Apple look bad here, but I, I don't really understand what the ultimate goal is. But um, if you're creating an iOS app or have an iOS iOS app that's using some of these app, app tracking identifiers, um, you might notice uh, you know a change in the data that you're getting back from Apple. Yeah, and and think about like can you can you charge something? I mean, because Apple essentially supports micropayments, and they make it really easy to do subscription management. Like you can pay a dollar a month for a subscription and you can cancel it whenever you feel like it. And they give you this nice thing where you can, you can subscribe for a month, cancel right away, and then still get that subscription through the end of the month. Like, you know, their subscription management is, is really, you know, really, really good. So like consider just doing that and having people, I know that might kill some, and I'm sure some app developers will have an issue with that, but like, just, just think about doing that as well. Cause uh, an app that I really love, I wouldn't mind throwing, you know, a dollar to a month or whatever. Um, and that could dwarf, you know, the amount of money that they're getting from ads. But if I think about, you know, Apple's position here, they're, they're really in an enviable position where people spend a boatload of money to buy a device. And I remember when it used to be like binary, whether or not an app had uh, location access, it's like, do you want to give it location access? Yes or no. And I was like, well, I needed to find my location now, but like, I don't want it tracking me till the end of time. And then they added that feature, you know, only while the app is running and now, and I think in iOS, what are we on 13? You know, it, it says, um, you can do once. Yeah. So you can do once. And then you can also, even with photos, you can say like, 
Hey, I only, I want to be very specific with the photos I give access to. These are all wonderful, wonderful changes. And I just see like what they're doing here. They're just, they're just continuing that path. So I think I, 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 I feel like it's not even like a line that they're crossing. It's just, it's just a, a gradient of like, they're getting more and more focused on this, like letting the user control how their data is used. And I think it's great. Like I, I, I don't want any, um, I don't want any of this stuff sent to anybody. Like I want maximum privacy. And if you give me a good reason to opt in, like, you know, Hey, your business won't exist. If, if you don't do this, then, okay, then maybe that's a choice that I get, or maybe I can throw you a dollar. Like I'm pretty sure if I give Facebook a dollar a month, they would, you know, like I, I would love if they were like, Hey, we're not going to do evil things. If you just give us a dollar a month (laughs) and we'll provide you like this utility here, like (laughs) that, that would be great if they could do something like that. But I feel like they're just, they're sort of like, I just feel like they're evil by nature. (laughs) Um, Well, I, I, I think that, um, you know, I listen to the Twit Network, and I think mm-hmm. Leo puts it the best. It's not necessarily that they're evil, but you know, a lot of times they look at this, you know, without a moral standing whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So when you don't put those, you know, any morals into it whatsoever, you know, they make you know a what seems to be a logical decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, we've had a side conversation with some of our friends, like you know, people and their brains are not logical. Mm-hmm. So you know, we bring other context and things into it, including, you know, a moral spectrum. Mm-hmm. But it, it it is mind blowing to me that like Facebook is, they're like distorting the, the, how, how distorted they've, they've made this messaging. Like Apple is going to kill small business. <laughs> and it's yeah. like, well, okay, maybe that's like technically true, but holy cow, like they're just trying to make, they're trying to make everybody's lives better. And, and I feel like it's, on Apple's part, I don't feel like it's that selfish. Like I, I just think that they're really doubling down. They are selling that aspect. Like that is one of the things I like about iPhone is that that, that it is like lockdown, and they're just not letting people get away with this stuff. And like I will pay money for that. Yep. In you know for for you know just the sleekness and um and and just knowing that you're not using like my cellular data for this, even though it's unlimited. Like I just I want to know what's going on. It's my device. I want to know what's going on. So anyway, we probably talked that one to death. Okay. So speaking of Apple. (laughs) So you got a new toy, I heard. Yes, I did. And, and Apple has failed me um, because they, (laughs) they, I ordered it and they said it would be delivered uh, December 3rd through the 10th. So that's the new Apple M1. It's the MacBook Air with the M1 chip. Uh, And and to be clear, um, you didn't just pick like one of the, you know, couple options they gave you, you went in, you tweaked and you made a, a custom order for this. Yeah. So I, I bumped up the memory from eight gigs to 16, just cause eight just feels super tight these days. Um, and people are kind of losing their mind saying like, Oh, you don't need as much memory on these things. And maybe that's the case a little bit. I actually think the reason that people think you need less memory is because the disc and the processor are so fast that it just makes up for any kind of swapping and you're just not noticing it because I mean, if you have an image in, in by an image, I mean like a photo and like you throw it into memory, it doesn't matter if your architecture is arm based or if it's Intel based, like it is what it is. You know, there's the memory is memory, right? So, but I, so I bumped up the memory cause I, I want to do video editing and, and things like that. And I just run like a fair number of applications and development and all that kind of stuff. And then I also bumped up to one terabyte of SSD. And, uh, that's important for, for video because you just, you need space for video and 
Final Cut likes to create these giant swap files or, or render files and things like that. So um, apparently the combination that I ordered, which was the MacBook Air 16 gigs with one terabyte of storage, was like in the shortest supply. Um, so I think Apple just predicted the demand of that by far the worst, followed by, I think, like the MacBook Pro with the similar uh, specs. I think they were they must have been counting on more people just getting the base model. Like um, for the longest time, you could just walk into an Apple store or order online or from Best Buy, just like the base configuration. And those were plentiful. So Apple made a ton of those. So anyway, um, that's what I got. Um, so it is the MacBook Air, so it's completely fanless, which is pretty nice. And, um, it doesn't get warm. The only warmth it gets is like if it's sitting on my lap and the warmth is just from my legs, like that, that's where it's getting, getting. So that, that's interesting because, you know, I, you know, I'm trying to imagine, you know, lessons learned that they've taken from the iPhone and the Mm -hmm. iPad and, you know, applying it to this. And if you take either of those devices and you hit you know, an application that's hitting something hard, especially for an extended period of time, that phone or that iPad will get pretty warm. Yeah. Not uncomfortable, but definitely you're like, wow, the phone itself is Mm -hmm. generating the heat. Yeah. And this will throttle, I guess after like 10 minutes of like sustained performance, it will throttle. And I'm hearing it like a 15% degradation in performance. Um, I think it's worth it just to have no mechanic. I mean, there are no moving parts on this thing. It is a it is a super fast laptop with zero moving parts, and that is that is well, I guess the hinge, I guess if we want to count that, um, but that that is uh, that is that's really appealing to me. So you know, this doesn't replace like my desktop or anything. I'm I'm literally using this just as my laptop, and um, one of the only reasons that I even still have an interest in in you know Apple laptops and in uh, Mac OS is really because of Final Cut, uh, because of the video editing, because I really like Final Cut and I just don't want to learn anything else. Plus, I think it's a tremendous value where it's a $300 purchase for life. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like that's how software used to work. And Apple seems to be um, still on board with like, hey, if you bought it, whenever, like you can just keep it and use it forever. And that's pretty appealing to me. The Premiere apps like would just cost me a lot, even if I'm not using them every month. That's awesome. Yeah. It, you know, it's, it's amazing. You know, you know, we, we've seen that transition in software, mm-hmm. but it's amazing how many, like even physical goods are turning into subscription based and, you know, you're seeing those business models transition over time. So, you know, when you look at it for a value as a customer, it's, you know, it almost seems old fashioned, but in a welcoming way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I go back and forth on this because I like my subscriptions. Like I love Office 365 as a subscription because I feel like the value you get versus the monthly payment and like how much I use it is it's just like a no brainer. But for video editing through Adobe, it's what, 30 bucks, 30, I don't know, 35 if you want to get, you know, like Premiere because it comes with a whole bunch of other things. Um, Yeah. My problem is they don't have like a hobbyist version for the Adobe products. Yeah, exactly. Or or should I not even say hobbyist, but like occasional usage. Cause there's sometimes like, I do need like illustrator or something like that. And to be honest, I just farm it out to a designer because that's, it's easier paying the couple bucks then than it is to pay Adobe. Yeah. It's like, I want it. I want to pay less for, for some kind of uh, casual usage. Holy crap. Okay. So (laughs) I'm on their website. (laughs) So all of the Adobe apps, $53 a month. Now, if you were, if you were working in a business, that is nothing. That is like nothing. I mean, any business would be like, whatever, that's nothing. Um, if you would, but, sim- but if you're trying to like design, like, you know, you know, a, a kid's soccer team logo or something, 
Right. That that's a lot to spend on something like that. Yeah. If that's the right tool. Now, to be fair, like I am getting Lightroom for ten dollars a month. I'm. It's just Lightroom. So if I go under graphic design, Illustrator is twenty one dollars a month. Photoshop is twenty one dollars a month, and then Premiere Pro is twenty one dollars a month. But if I have uh, Premiere plus Lightroom, then I'm going to be at thirty bucks a month. It's just. That's a no, I mean, it's, it's not going to happen because 300, 300, basically let's round up to four. Cause with tax and all that, I'm going to be paying $400 a year. Um, anyway, you get the point. I yeah. don't want to keep so beating this. Horse. Just to kind of like turn this conversation into a mm-hmm. question here. So you mentioned final cut and you have mm-hmm. a bunch of other things in here, office, outlook, VS code, Lightroom, and edge. Yep. You have those under what's good Yep. now. Can I assume that they're good because they've already done the work to optimize them for M1 or are they just. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So Final Cut Pro obviously is like really their shining example. If you look at any review of the of the new Apple laptops with the M1, they all show Final Cut because it runs like a beast because because of that um, shared memory architecture, because of the fast um, SSD that they have. And then the fact that the M1 is just like hyper optimized for like, you know, doing basically doing video processing. This is this is basically um, until you get until you spend like ten grand on like a Mac Pro. This is like Apple's best video editing machine that they make at all. Basically, anything with the M1, like their six hundred dollar Mac Mini, beats their four thousand dollar iMac Pro for video editing, which is just that's crazy. insane. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's really an optimization. Um, so there's you know it's kind of it's the same as on Windows, where if you're running Windows, you can emulate uh, Win thirty two. Um, but it's, it's way, way, way better if you have the arm optimized version for a number of reasons. So I'll give you some other examples here. So like, um, office, um, has just been updated. So I'm actually running the, um, the Apple Silicon vert. That's where usually we have to search for is like product that you want and then Apple Silicon and you'll see like a special download. Um, so I have the Apple Silicon version of office and that includes OneNote, by the way. Um, I wasn't sure if they were grouping that in or not. Um, I also have the new Outlook and Outlook on the Mac has a totally different design now. Um, I think some people will hate it. I think it looks pretty incredible. Um, it just, I don't know. It just feels good. It looks good. <laughs> it's its not like the the Death Star on like Windows, which, you know, I, I love Outlook, so don't get me wrong, but like, it's just like a clean, like Mac-ish type of look. And I think it looks pretty cool. Um, VS Code, if you use an insider's build, they have a, they already have a build for Apple Silicon silicon and um not silicon silicon <laughs> and uh um if you use so if you use like the mainstream version of vs code it will run it will run on rosetta which is like their emulation layer um, but you do get slower launch times vs code on my machine launches in a fraction of a second um it's amazing whenever you have an m1 optimized app like this adobe lightroom um, and then, yeah, I am using an insider build of edge, which is readily available. That came out just a couple days ago. I actually, I ran the Rosetta version. So just to give you like some real numbers, um, Safari on the Mac, whenever you click on the icon from like a cold start, it launches. And from, I, I haven't done an actual like stopwatch, but me counting in my head, it takes half a second to launch Safari from a cold start. Um, the version of edge that was running under Rosetta. So it was basically the Intel build, um, emulated would take about five seconds, uh, which is, which is like an attorney. Now, granted it stays running so that you don't have to have that cold start time, but still, um, the new, um, Apple Silicon optimized version of edge takes about two seconds. 
So it's more than twice as fast as that at that you know cold start uh, launch. And then it just feels snappier. I mean, you're not you're just not running through any kind of emulation layer. So um, yeah, it's just better. Better for battery, better for everything. So I've actually been avoiding anything that doesn't run on there. Um, so for example, um, under the what's bad column, OneDrive. Um, there's no Apple Silicon version of OneDrive yet. Um, I did actually install it. The the existing version, I was going to say old, but the existing version of OneDrive on there, I don't know. The performance was kind of crappy and it was like doing its initial setup and I just got frustrated. I, I literally killed it and just uninstalled it. I'm like, I'm just going to wait. I'm going to deal with the pain of not having uh, OneDrive for a while. And I know that you, you've been pretty good about using the web app versions of, you know, whatever applications, whenever they're available and stuff like that. So Mm -hmm. I, I think for, for you and your use case, like Mm -hmm. that's a good stopgap with the web app version. I mean, you just don't get those, you know, local syncs and some of those other things. Yeah, exactly. Like that one is kind of painful not having OneDrive, but I can just, I can live without it for, I probably don't have to live without it for like a month. I don't have any inside information, but like I would be shocked if one month from now they didn't have a OneDrive optimized version. Um, and then Teams, Teams is not yet M1 optimized, even though Electron has actually been optimized for Apple Silicon. Um, they just haven't updated Teams yet. Um, now Teams, you can run in a browser, um, just like uh, like Discord is kind of the same way. Um, and Discord actually runs fine in your browser, but you know, it's still just not a, it's not an app that's like native and, and optimized. So I am, Teams is like one of the only apps that I'm actually running and running it through Rosetta, um, which by the way, this is probably just me being kind of psycho because Teams runs great on here. Um, there's, there's, there's not like normal users will not even notice if, if you're actually, if you're running it emulated. And I don't know what the exact impact is on battery life and those types of things. So like you can just run all these apps. Um, I'm just desperately trying to avoid it. And I'm just being, you know, very anxious to get the Apple Silicon version of these things. Um, Another neat thing you can do on the Apple Silicon is you can run the iPhone and iPad apps. Um, But they don't really exist because uh, publishers can opt out. So if you think you're getting Instagram, you're not. If you think you're getting... Um, I don't know, like I named almost every app on my phone the other day and I was like, mm-hmm. not there, not there, not there, not there. Um, random obscure apps that haven't been maintained. Uh, those are generally there, um, which makes sense because um, they haven't they haven't opted out. But um, let me just look at my phone real quick because I can name some apps like the Outlook app, uh, Spotify, Teams, Slack, uh, Twitter, Facebook, I don't think any of those are on there, even like FedEx, UPS, like, um, yeah, OneDrive, Instagram, they've all opted out. So this is like a pretty useless feature. Plus they have no touchscreen. So instead of like dragging the screen, you end up having to scroll with your, with your cursor. So anyway, it's, it's terrible. There's, there's, if this feature wasn't there, I just wouldn't even miss it. So that's fine. Um, if you are a developer, um, and you want to be living the Apple Silicon life, your life is going to be pretty terrible. I think you can run, um, homebrew and node and I don't know about Docker. I think Docker would be problematic, but like you can run all this stuff under Rosetta if you want. Um, I actually have no reason to run any of this. So what I'm actually doing on my laptop is I'm using the, um, remote SSH functionality in VS code. I know we've talked about that before. And I'm actually using my old laptop, which this is really bad, but my, my old laptop is my, my work laptop. And it's a, it's the Dell XPS 13 and it's got 32 gigs of Ram terabyte. Like it's a crazy, awesome laptop, right? Uh, spec wise. 
And so I'm, I actually installed Ubuntu on there and I just remote SSH into that. And that is an awesome experience. It's like instant connection. And, um, and you really can't even tell that you're like remote, um, you know, debugging and all this other stuff. So that that's actually been a really wonderful experience. So I don't want Docker or any of that stuff. Docker on Linux is better than Docker on anything else because that's where it was born. That's what it's meant to run on. So, um, for me personally, it's a, it's fine. I don't, I don't, nothing is missing, but I definitely don't want anybody to listen to this and be like, wow, this is, this is great. I'm going to go out and I'm going to develop on the, on the Apple Silicon. Um, I think, uh, I think most people honestly should wait. I just have a really weird set of use cases where I want to edit video. I want to do some photo work. And then I'm going to run VS code and I'm going to run it against a, a remote Linux machine. And I don't really, I really don't need much other than that. So, um, you know, people talk about, uh, battery life on these things. Now the battery life is, it's definitely better than what I would call normal laptops, but it's also way below the ridiculous claims that you may have heard. Um, it's the, basically the truth. The truth lies in the middle there. What you have to remember is that like the screen uses a fixed amount of power. I mean, you can obviously adjust the brightness, but like you have a, you have a battery budget for things that are not your, your CPU. Right. And, um, I think there's just like a certain amount of battery usage that did just occurs on this. The processor does have low power core, so it can use those generally. Like I'm generally, I'm not using just a lot of power and, and I'm using, I don't know, less than 10% of my battery power every hour. So I am getting, you know, 10 hours of battery life on it, which I think is amazing. But, um, I haven't played around with this too much, but basically like even installing applications and in basically pushing this processor a little bit harder, I think the biggest difference between this and like an Intel processor or AMD processor is that the increase in battery usage is actually minimal, right? There's not a huge difference between like not using the processor and using the processor. So if you're doing video editing, you know, you might cut down your, your battery life by a little bit, but it's not as bad. You know, I used to have a 2017, uh, MacBook Pro that I would do video editing on, and I could, in less than an hour, kill that battery. So if I was just doing like light web browsing and the screen wasn't very bright, I could get ten hours, but I could also kill the battery in less than an hour. Whereas that's just not the case on this thing. I haven't pushed it really hard, but I suspect I could do five plus hours of video editing on this, and it would still be fine. Yeah, battery life is just you know one of those you know, arcane things. There's so many things that can draw power. Like yeah. you said, there's so many subsystems. Um, I, I think that you even posted to me, like we were talking about brain physiology earlier mm-hmm. and you posted like a CPU and it's like, brains are like this, but messier. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, there's so many subsystems on there and they can, all of them require power. And like you said, you know, the monitor, like any peripheral that's there, mm-hmm. there's just an inherent power draw. Yeah. And it's really, how are you using the computer at that moment to which subsystem is going to crank harder? And well, the focus of this was obviously uh, the architecture of the motherboard, the CPU, the GPU, and all those integrated memory systems that are in there. But there's a lot of things like the trackpad, the keyboard, you know, that probably have a more fixed power consumption. And exactly. obviously, they didn't touch the technology for uh, the screen. And that would have probably required something uh, that's going to be a little bit more industry-wide uh, impact, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if we do see something like that. It, I doubt that Apple's going to come up with their own display technology, uh, at least anytime soon. Yeah. Like so, color, color e-ink or something where, <laughs> but it's, that would it's be awesome. Bright. Yeah. So, you know, I've been, you know, in these COVID times, like I, I sit at my desk all day and, and I do have the uplift desk so I can go up and down, but like, 
I just get tired of sitting at this desk, man. So like I have a couch now in my office and then also just being able to like work around my family a little bit, you know, like while they're watching something and just kind of be there a little bit. It that's, that's been really nice. So I have tested this, um, not too extensively, but I've, I've tested a lot. I mean, I had a two day period, probably I'd say like the past two days where I use this thing, probably, probably about four hours each day doing random things. So web browsing, um, editing Word documents. So I was using Word, Excel. I was using VS Code, doing some development, uh, chatting on Slack. Um, but, you know, basically four, four hours each day of fairly constant usage. Uh, I say, you know, if I take out all the gaps, I would say it was four hours of usage. And I think I was down to like, and I intentionally didn't charge it the one night. And I think I was down to like 20% battery. Um, so I actually feel confident if I needed to, um, if I needed to do eight hours of work and I didn't have a charger and this thing was fully charged, I'm actually, I'm very confident that I would be able to do that. I wouldn't, I honestly really wouldn't worry about this thing dying. Um, maybe if I was on teams calls all day, um, once, once we have the M one optimized version, um, that'll be really interesting. Cause I heard zoom, um, oh, I can't remember what the numbers were, but people were doing hours of zoom calls and I still think you might be okay. Um, I probably not eight hours of zoom calls, but if you did like four hours of zoom calls and then four hours of development, you might simply get it through, through a day, um, which I think is impressive. I think it's, I think it's pretty darn impressive. They basically hardware encoded a lot of the, the video things that would happen in an application like zoom. So if the application, if like teams can, if their codec can actually take advantage of some of those hardware optimizations, then that's pretty cool. So, um, yeah, I think that's about it. I mean, I, I, I really like it. It's, it's, a like I said, I mean, it's, it's small. Um, I like that they fixed their keyboard. Their keyboards are crap for a while. The power adapter is actually as small as that GAN power adapter that I had, but this is a, nice. it's, a it's only a 29 watt power adapter. Um, think of what the iPad power adapter is the size of that. That's, this is almost that same size <laughs> and it's just USB-C. So, um, I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I, I'm really excited to see, you know, how this affects the rest of the computer industry mm-hmm. uh, and yes. the rest of the hardware manufacturers, uh, because, you know, oftentimes it does take, you know, one, uh, you know, competitor to make a leap to kind of like get everybody else to try to match or exceed them. And that's when the customers like us win. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Like wake up Intel. <laughs> <laughs> like they're, they're just like asleep at the wheel. I, I do not know what is going on with uh, with Intel. I mean, it's a great company, like they've made great products, but like, you know, they got challenged by AMD years and years ago and that, that kind of woke them up. Like I'm waiting for them to wake up again. Like I would love, you know, supposedly this chip from Apple was like three years in the making, although it was based on their mobile platform. So, I mean, it's really like two decades in the making, but, um, you know, nothing would make me more excited than Intel being like, oh, by the way, for the past five years, we've been working on something that's even better than everything out there, right? So fingers crossed that they've been doing that. Otherwise, you know, I'm, I'm a little worried about them. I mean, they'll survive, but, um, I don't know. They need, they need something dramatic to, to really uh, change the landscape yet again. So, and then this laptop, it has like the, the instant on Apple's always been really good at that. Um, at like, you know, what you close the thing and it's, it's basically in standby when you open it, it's like instant on. And it is true. Like it is, it is ready to go. When, when you, even if you open the screen up real quick, by the time it's open, like one inch, like it is like ready to roll. 
That's awesome. I I can't remember exactly when the time frame was, but like around like the Wis, uh, Vista or XP uh, time frame for Windows, they're like, oh yeah, we made this so it's like instant or like blah blah like whatever nomenclature they yeah. used. It was like that was a synonym for it, and then like you experienced it and like, well, that was thirty seconds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, this it's is better, but that's Apple not has close. nailed this. I think it's because of their vertical integration. I mean, they control everything, so yeah. like it's just it's just perfection. So it is kind of funny though, because as I look across my, um, what do they call that on there? They're the dock. It's all Microsoft apps. So I look across the bottom and I have, um, I have edge VS code and then, um, one note word, Excel, PowerPoint, like it's, this is my little Microsoft machine. Um, so I love it. It's a great, it's a great combination. Um, it's a great little machine. So I would, I would definitely recommend it for somebody who has the same use case as me. Okay. Any other questions on the laptop or should we go to the second topic? Yeah, I think, I think we've beat that one for, for a little bit now. Yeah. So let me set up the second topic. So I, um, you know, my, my kids are, um, they're obviously in school because <laughs> they're, um, you know, they're, they're going to school and, um, well, they were two of them, actually all three of them were in virtual school for a while. One is back in physical school and, you know, it's sort of like back and forth. Uh, there's varying different situations there, but, I, I was talking to some people pretty high up in the school district to actually complain about a few things. And then I didn't want to just be the person who complained. I wanted to um, also see if there was a way that I could, um, you know, help them improve their program. Cause you know, anybody who has like a wealth of industry experience, I think can, can really um, help out at their uh, local school or volunteer in different ways. So I was asking them how I could do that. And I ended up, um, getting in touch with a couple of people, one of them being the guy who is in charge of their, basically their computer science curriculum. And, you know, it's a first, the first year for him. And, and he is um, like, I think he's doing really great work. He's got a really great attitude, but I went to him and I said, Hey, how can I help? And he was sort of unsure. And he's like, Hey, what can Microsoft do for us? Um, because I know Microsoft has a whole bunch of educational programs. And I said, I have no idea, <laughs> but my friend Carl does. So I, I called you up and then you were like, Hey, like, let's have this conversation on the podcast. So that's how we got here. So, you know, like basically my giant question for you is like, what does Microsoft have that can, you know, like what, what can they bring to the table whenever you do want to help out your, your local school system? So, you know, to relate my little backstory, about three years ago, I was kind of in a similar situation as you. Mm-hmm. Um, I live in a little bit more rural area. So uh, the school district, and this is K through 12, has about 300 students in them. And, uh, you know, I was looking at, you know, what they do. There's there's some programs that they have. They're, they're, it's a very highly rated school for a public school in Wisconsin. And... Um, but because of their size, there's only so many things that they can offer. But being passionate about, you know, the opportunities that I have in the industry that I have, you know, I want, you know, not only my children, but the children in our community to have those same opportunities. Uh, so I learned uh, that Microsoft has a program called Teals, and we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, but, you know, I looked at that. I looked at, you know, what the school was looking for in a computer science program. And I reached out to the superintendent and said, hey, you know, um, Microsoft has this program. Uh, First and foremost, you know, the things that they want to hear is uh, you don't have to do a lot of work. Um, It's free and uh, you'll get people to do stuff for you as part of the program. And I think that was literally all it took. Um, 
he did mention that they were looking at other things like code.org and a few other things that basically they were going to kind of like scrape together a curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, so TEAL specifically uh, stands for Teaching Education and Liter- Literacy in Schools. Um, it's kind of a uh, an interesting pairing because there's a curriculum that's offered. Um, I believe it was created by Stanford. So Microsoft didn't touch didn't create the curriculum. They just kind of packaged it and are, are making it available for schools. So uh, the curriculum part is, is solved, but you still have a, an issue where you have uh, teachers not being familiar with computer science, uh, much less how to teach it. Uh, but one of the problems that Teals has is we they can't just say, here's somebody to go teach because mm-hmm. in every single state, and every single country, there's different uh, requirements on what being a teacher is. And you generally have to get certified. And if you're certified in the U.S. in a state, you can't just go teach in another state. You have to have these various certifications. So what they came up with as a concept is there's a lot of industry professionals spread across the U.S. Uh, that understand computer science. There's a lot of teachers that have the desire to learn it, but they don't. They can't kind of do that on their free time. Teachers are already stretched pretty thin mm-hmm. the way it is, and a lot of times you're taking a math, a science, an English teacher, and expecting them to do computer science as well. So what the Teals program does is it kind of helps find these volunteers and matching them with a teacher. And even though um, the volunteers are coming in and teaching the students or assisting with that process. The main goal is ultimately to get these teachers educated on these topics so that they can do the education on their own after several years. So that's what I really thought was. So it's like a bootstrapping. Really, yeah, it's a really cool concept that kind of, you know, it doesn't circumvent the laws. It works alongside all of the regulation that was put there for a good reason and brings in um, kind of this battle hardened curriculum. And it's in uh, the curriculum's kind of set up into three classes. Uh, you have the intro to computer science, to computer science, um, and you have the AP computer science, and then you have the computer science principles, which is kind of like a survey of concepts without actually getting your hands into it. Um, but uh, I want to kind of go into the intro to comp side because that's the experience that a lot of people have. Um, it's it's divided into two semesters. The first semesters. Uh, the first semester is taught in um, SNAP, which is based on MIT Scratch, which is block-based. So there's you go to a website and you literally drag different shapes that are puzzle-shaped. And if if you can plug them together, it'll work. If you can't plug it together, it won't work. And by work, you know, it might not do what you want, but it'll at least execute. I haven't heard of that one. Is that different than so it's it's based on um, the MIT uh, Scratch, and if you oh, okay, if yeah, you yeah. know that, and yeah, if exactly. you're familiar that's with that, that's what I was trying to think of. Yeah, um, there's there's a few rough edges that they kind of rounded off, but it's um, it's really nice. You can do very simple things, and uh, throughout the curriculum, you can do things like uh, you build a platform gamer. Like oh yeah, a this is like scroller. the same. Yeah, this is like the same type of thing. Okay, cool. Yeah, so I mean, it's really cool for that, um, but also like. The day one activity, like when you're in in a high school classroom, um, we as developers uh, kind of have a different view of what a computer is compared to like the general public. 
uh, general public looks at their iPhones or their Android phones. And like, these are supercomputers in my pocket. They're magical. Um, developers are wizards and, you know, all this. And we look at that and like, dang, these things are dumb. <laughs> and the first day is really to get kids to understand computers are stupid. So, you know, without giving too much away, the first activity in class is kids have to get together in a group and write down directions on how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Okay. Day two in class, you have a uh, you have the instructors that have a loaf of bread, a knife. Well, they try to follow it, and they follow it exactly like a computer would. Like if you don't say <laughs> what to do, it doesn't get done. And it really cements, you know, it's these fun activities like this yeah. that really cements these kinds of concepts in. So, um, you know, it's it's a lot of fun built into a lot of learning as well. But they so but these are like so these are additional classes that the that the school would have. Yeah. So, okay. um, you sign up for it just like you would any other elective. Okay. So in most schools, these are, uh, you know, elective style classes. Um, the, the second semester really kind of goes over a lot of the, the same concepts as the first, but instead of doing it snap, now it's actually in Python. So kids are learning Python in, in this course. And that's really cool because now they're taking, you know, what they used to just drag blocks together and they're writing actual code. And it's amazing uh, seeing coding styles develop at this level. Yeah. That's awesome. And then um, once you get beyond the intro, uh, there is a curriculum for the AP computer science uh, that's Java based, but they also allow a little bit of flexibility. Uh, the school that uh, I volunteer at decided that Java w wasn't the approach that they wanted to take. They wanted to do a little bit more web-based approach. So we're teaching uh, JavaScript, Node, HTML, CSS uh, for the AP CompSci. And uh, we've uh, seen the kids really uh, grasp onto that because uh, one, it's a little bit more approachable and two, it's a little bit more applicable. They can see websites that they interact with or web applications and they can kind of pick apart like what's going on. They get into the dev tools and they can start messing around. And it's, it's a lot of fun to see them uh, learn and grow in that way. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. So, but you know, I guess I'm wondering like, so do I have, if I go to the school, so I go to this guy who runs like the computer science. So, you know, I think he has, there's like some existing classes. So am I going to him though, saying like he has to add these classes or maybe he can adapt something that already exists. So if they want Teals to come in, mm -hmm. they prefer that like the class structure is and the curriculum is is used to a certain degree. Okay. Um, depending upon the region that you're in, they'll allow a different amount of flexibility. If you look at the website, they make it sound like there's no flexibility. But I can tell you as a volunteer and working with, you know, the regional management that uh, certain things can definitely be uh, fudged or in incorporated, uh, or you can incorporate external, uh, okay. education in there too. Um, what, what is really nice is like in the curriculum, it's not just like, you know, here's all the things, but it's like, you know, like it's written from a teacher's point of view. Like th this is the daily class plan. And, you know, it has all the things that they would structure as part of a class plan and the learning objectives and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And us as, you know, industry professionals, that's the side of education that, we may not understand, you know, we understand that, Hey, we're teaching binary today and this is how you count binary. And this is how the ones and zeros carry over. And here's some, maybe some activity to make it a little bit more fun. But then, you know, that has to map back to all of the educational goals as part of this. So 
you know, there is that nice intersection of education as well as technology. Okay. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, um, another thing that's kind of interesting is there's, there's not just one way to volunteer. Um, they offer three explicit models. Uh, one is the co-teach model. That's where you have a teacher that really doesn't have a background. And especially the first year, uh, the volunteers, normally there's, there's several to a school. They don't expect you to come in every day, five days a week and teach, um, especially for free. That's quite a bit. Um, at the school that I'm at, we have three volunteers and we each take two days a week. So there's uh, one day a week where there's several of us. So and which, which of these options are you, so you're co-teaching? Yeah. So we're in the process of co-teaching and, okay. and splitting to lab support. So co-teach is where the volunteers actually do a majority of the teaching. And, um, you know, some of the goal is as the teacher gets familiar with some of these, the teacher will take more and more of the teaching of the content, Mm -hmm. um, and letting the, uh, you know, the volunteers be more like a color commentary, uh, person from sports. Uh, the other uh, model is lab support. And that's really where the, the, teacher does like the uh, lecture days and you get to go in when they're actually doing the hands-on lab and come in and like if a you know a student is stuck on a given problem you can kind of come over there and help talk them through their problem you know when you see that hey they're not incrementing their counter um, you don't tell them that but you know, like help guide them through that process mm-hmm. uh, stuff like that as well as you know being a backup if for some reason the teacher is sick or something like that um, that's a, you know, a lot less. Um, and generally they're only looking for volunteers to be there two to three days a week. Okay. So, whereas the other one, they need a volunteer there every day. Mm. And especially if you have multiple volunteers, that's, that's one day a week. You know, a lot of people can, um, you know, find one hour, one day a week, a lot easier than they can two to three days a week. So these other volunteers, how did you, how did you meet up with them? So, um, First and foremost, you know, I was volunteer number one because I kind of brought it to the school. And then uh, a lot of times the, uh, you know, people at the school and management, the superintendent, the principals, they're pretty well connected to the community. They know what other parents are doing, Um, as well as they talk very heavily with other schools in not only within their district, but in other districts. So uh, the next volunteer that they found very quickly uh, was an uncle who had several kids uh, as nieces and nephews in the school. And he taught at a uh, Catholic school in the same town. Mm-hmm. So um, th- they reached out to him and say, hey, you're already doing this there. Do you mind coming on? Like, here's the program. And he signed on pretty quickly. And then the first year was just me and him. And then the second year, uh, they found uh, another person uh, through networking. Um, if a school can't find enough volunteers, the, uh, Teals program is equipped to kind of network and find professionals in the area. Um, if you have a a user group or a coding camp, a lot of times Teals is starting to, um, find ways to figure out who's all there and who might be willing from those groups to, um, help become volunteers. Okay. So if a school can't find enough people, um, you know, it's not entirely on them to help find the volunteers. And then is this whole thing like volunteer based or is somebody putting some money into this, like the, some of the the website and the resources and things like that? 
Yep. So Microsoft Philanthropies is actually paying for it. Okay. So, you know, they pay for the curriculum, they pay for the management of the program. And there's, in fact, you know, Microsoft employees in the, in a, a Teals division. I'm not exactly sure how that all works, okay. but it, it comes from Microsoft Philanthropies budget. And um, even things like if you live outside of like a certain... It's not very far. If you live, I think it's more than like a quarter mile or a half mile away from the school, they'll they'll pay volunteers gas and, you know, stuff like that. Okay. So there is a fair amount that, you know, the schools are getting without having to uh, pay anything for. And, you know, Microsoft is putting up, uh, you know, quite a bit of uh, money in various forms. Mm-hmm. Um, the last uh, types of volunteering option is, let's just say you are willing and able to be a volunteer but there's actually no schools near you that are that you can go to. There's a remote option. You could be either a co-teach or lab support in a remote fashion. So okay. that's another cool uh, way to do that too. Okay. How do you like, so how did you sell this to the school then? Cause they, I mean, in a way it feels like a, almost like a burden to them. I mean, obviously there's a, there's a benefit, but did they, did they see it as a burden or a benefit? I mean, obviously they so, saw it as a benefit because they did it. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, the, the ultimate thing that very easily worked in my favor is the school was already looking for a computer science program. They okay. were looking for various curriculum packages. Mm-hmm. I was not aware of that at the time. I just looked at it. I'm like, Hey, there's, there's a gap in your educational experience. Uh, you know, I understand it's a small district. However, you know, with the fact that Microsoft is offering this for free indefinitely. Once you get the materials, you can reuse them however often you want. So mm-hmm. they will always have, you know, these things. And they're not necessarily all technology back. Like I mentioned, that peanut butter and jelly sandwich exercise. I mean, I mean, that's something that the program came up with, packaged, you know, put into a learning plan. And the school has that forever. Mm-hmm. It's not something that's going to get outdated or old until we come up with smarter computers. Right. So, um, you know, that's a really cool aspect of that too, that, you know, these are things that not only are they getting, but it's it's not like you're only getting this for two years and then you're going to be stuck with, you know, a very expensive program or textbooks or, or something that has to be renewed. You know, all of these are... Um, well, in fact, all the curriculum is out on GitHub, so you can, you know, clone the repo. You can fork the repo. Oh, that's cool. Okay. You can make a pull request against the education. Um, yeah, that's uh, awesome. Content. I'd like to see that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like this. I, I think, I think I might not. Instead of just talking to like the computer science teacher, I think I might need to go up that chain, right? I mean, I might need yeah. to talk to somebody higher up because it sounds like there's like a bigger, larger benefit to the school um, by doing yeah. this. And. Granted, I'm not in the education field, but from my experience, if you have, you know, a super te- superintendent and principal uh, that's that's open and focused on, you know, probably the things that they should be, you know, they're going to be open to something like this because it's it's a way to, you know, get more value without putting the school at a ton of risk. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but it if you have an educator that's looking to expand or, you know, do something new, uh, the uh, actual teacher that is fulfilling this in the school that I volunteer at is an English teacher and mm-hmm. who's just happens to be like just super tech and he loves like you know, fidgeting with electronics and building things. Um, he runs a robotics department. So, you know, there's a lot of you know, 
you know, skills that translate. And even though he didn't understand the code part of it, he was able to map, you know, some of those other technical interests he had into, uh, you know, getting up to speed with the uh, things he didn't know. Okay. So, you know, obviously this is part of like Microsoft philanthropy, but what are, what are some of the other goals of the program? Yeah. So, um, you know, first and foremost, you know, we as an industry are looking at, we have more job positions out there than we have people to fill them. So kind of first and foremost, this is probably a way to like, Hey, let's go to the source. And, you know, if we're running, uh, you know, out of candidates, let's, train more candidates into the system. So first and foremost, it gets, you know, more people exposed to computer science, uh, especially kids. They have a lot of preconceived notions about what the field is and isn't. And if you don't have any experience with it or any way to interact with somebody of that profession, you're not going to consider it as often as you will biology or science or art, because those are the classes that you're seeing at least some sort of window into, mm -hmm. um, you know, a real artist might not be like your art teacher, but you at least understand art because you've had art classes, same with science and shop class and all of those other things. This is giving that window into computer science and especially it's bringing outside people in. So, Hey, this is what a real programmer or a real it administrator is. And this is how they do that. Mm -hmm. Um, in addition, you know, uh, the program is, uh, focused and concerned about, you know, uh, increasing diversity. You know, that's one thing that especially large businesses are getting a lot of um, scrutiny over is because they, they aren't diverse enough or as diverse as the population that they're in. And one of the best ways to do this is to just get more people at a younger age um, aware and exposed to it. And uh, the theory is, is, you know, if we can get, you know, the average population represented from the beginning, that'll carry through in the later stages mm -hmm. of careers as well. Um, Teals also has uh, a commitment uh, for each school to make sure that there's a diversity enrollment in the learning space, that um, it's inclusive. Um, the, the actual computer lab that we operate in is actually really cool mm -hmm. because the computers are actually on the backside of the desk behind them. So they actually have to, when it's lecture time, they can't sit there and like pretend to focus on oh, us, they have to look turn at around. the computer. They have to turn around. Oh, that's and smart. <laughs> so what's really cool about that is if you might have somebody that has an attention problem, yeah. you know, that kind of takes that, um, that potential, um, distraction that's occurring and it kind of gets it out of the way. So it's not just inclusion in, you know, some of the things that we might be uh, more aware of, but to see like small attention to detail like that really goes a long way to make sure that everybody can learn the content at the, at more similar paces. Um, and also, you know, it's, it's a great way if you do have a school that's understaffed or just doesn't have the budget for things, you know, just the fact that this curriculum doesn't cost anything, volunteers don't cost anything. Um, it, it makes, this education, this material available to people that might not have access to it otherwise. So it's been doing really good at like where there's uh, inner city schools that uh, traditionally don't have, you know, this kind of experience to them. Um, the, Teals is doing a really good job to make sure that those schools have the same opportunities to have volunteers go there as well. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately, like I said several times throughout here, this isn't just about educating the children. It's educating the teachers that are at these schools yeah. so that they can continue on 
teaching this throughout the rest of their careers. That's so it's cool. make, that's pretty cool. So it's yeah. enabling teach them, teachers. Teach them how to fish. Yep. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. This and, is like so much more organized than, you know, it was me. And then there was like another company where they had some people that had reached out and, you know, we, we've been so disorganized and I'm extremely unreliable and like, you know, the, the whole thing was like kind of stacked against us and how we were approaching this. And I love this pro this program. I think maybe it doesn't solve all those problems, but it, it gives a framework for yeah. solving all those problems. Yeah. And, and so for you, you know, I think maybe the next step that I would give advice to you since you've already identified, Hey, here's a school that could use some help. Mm -hmm. You know, after I had that initial interaction with the superintendent, the next thing I did is I reached out to the regional, uh, well, actually first I reached out to regional coordinator and actually talked to them what I should talk to the superintendent about. And then once we were done with that first interaction, we brought that regional supervisor in and Mm you know, got that leadership in there early. So the rest of the conversations can, you know, they've done this before. They've done this several times. So, you know, it might be my first time and your first time, but, you know, they can help guide uh, the process along since they've had experience from that before. Yeah, that's awesome. And then just to kind of give people the idea of the impact that Teals has had, um, just in the U.S. and Canada, uh, there's about 10,000 students a year across 455 schools. Um, there's 1,500 volunteers from 650 companies. And even though that you might say, hey, this is Microsoft, it's probably mostly Microsoft volunteers, 85% of the volunteers are outside of Microsoft. Mm. So that's a pretty significant um, you know, mm-hmm. you know, set of diversity. Uh, 35% of the students are female. So if we look at like the average development shop, I would struggle to find many that can you know, say that they have, you know, over a third female. Yeah. Um, you know, what's interesting about that is I, I did some volunteering at a, at a different school and, um, I actually, Microsoft did this really cool, like inclusive video and it was really targeted at, um, getting females interested in, in, in like programming. And it was, it was a third grade classroom. And, and, and honestly, like it was too early <laughs> because mm-hmm. the impression that I got was that they're just like, wait, there's, there's a problem. <laughs> like they're m- mostly guys are in this. And it, it, like, you know, that was, that was like the, the sentiment that I got. And I'm just like, Oh crap. Like I, I probably made things worse. Like, I feel like I don't, I don't know what age it happens at, but there is, there must be a certain grade where, where, you know, they start to see this and they're just like, okay, this is not appealing to me mm-hmm. because it doesn't look like it's friendly, um, to people that look like me. And, yeah. um, yeah, so I I don't know what I don't know what grade that happens yeah. in. Well, I mean, to a slightly different point, you know, I I had a student that was in uh, last year, mm-hmm. and she was a really good student, uh, but she obviously was not in it because she thought this was going to be a career. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she said she was going to become a you know go to law school and mm-hmm. become a lawyer or something. But the thing that I was really encouraged about, not just you know was her performance, but you know she said, hey, I understand technology now that even though that this isn't something that I'm going to do full time, I'm still interested in this. And I can see ways that like me understanding this can make me better at my other profession. Yeah. Or she might go be a lawyer and then switch careers and then use the lawyer knowledge, you know, they, they add together. Yeah. But, but it's really great seeing kids being able to connect the dots saying like, Hey, you know, this education, you know, might not be preparing me to do that full time, but it can make my other things better. Mm -hmm. And, and that's really cool when you can see people do that. Yeah. And then you had more stats here. Yeah. 
So one in five schools are rural and, you know, rural schools generally have a lot of, a uh, lot harder time, mm-hmm. you know, with this kind of education. Um, and students in this program score 8% higher on AP, uh, computer science standardized testing than, mm. uh, kids who go through other programs. So I think that is a testament to not only the curriculum, uh, but the whole methodology, the volunteers, um, kind of the whole package. Okay. Your outline here, by the way, is amazing. Are you going to put that in the show notes? I can do that. Okay. The, the I kind easy of, to copy paste. I think I just like the the contacts that I even have at the at the school and like the other volunteers. I I kind of want to just write them up a paragraph and then just paste this whole outline in. <laughs> Go for it. I mean, I mean to be honest, you know, um, I've been doing this for two and a half years now. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I find it really rewarding working with the kids. Um, the kids also really light up. Not, I mean, the teacher that we're working with. Um, is, you know, a good fun teacher to be with, Mm -hmm. but they like having variety and people outside. Um, especially since, you know, I, you know, I'm a software developer. Uh, the second uh, volunteer that came on, he's a Linux IT administrator. Mm. And, uh, the third one is, um, an active directory administrator, as well as an SAP developer. So it's like, (laughs) you have like, you know, just three totally different experiences. And there's times where I'll say like, Hey, this is, you know, what I feel about this question. And somebody's like, well, you know, I disagree with that. And here's my bet. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Well, and, and thank you for what you're doing. I mean, this is, this is really cool. I mean, you're helping future students. So our future, future coworkers. Yep. And, you know, I will add one little thing for if you are a Microsoft employee who does this, uh, Teals actually does go out of their way. And uh, if um, you're properly registered in the system every year, they will actually give an email to your vice president telling about uh, the impact that you've had uh, at that school. Oh, wow. That's so, (laughs) um, you know, it, it is cool because, you know, when you are working for a larger place, you know, sometimes it feels like you can get lost in the shuffle. And if you have an external organization, go to your VP and say, Hey, here's a bunch of positive things that this mm-hmm. person's doing that can only help your career in amazing Yeah. Ways. Put that on your connect too. Okay. Very cool. Um, anything else you want to talk about on the topic? I mean, that, this sounds like an amazing program. Like I definitely, like, I guess my only question is like, how do I, um, you know, if I want to start reading up on this and, and getting ready, obviously I'm going to read the the outline in the show notes, but then like what website do I go to? So we'll put the link to the Teals website just because I can't remember it off the top of my head. Um, there's one uh, domain just for Teals and there's one on Microsoft that kind of links mm. all together. Okay. But both of them have really good uh, information on what it means to be a volunteer and how to get connected. And uh, this is actually the time of year where they're going through their pushes to get volunteers for next year. So okay. if you want to do that, you know, reach out to, um, you know, the contacts that uh, you're given and, you know, hopefully you can have uh, just as much fun, but also have just as much an impact in whatever community that you're working with. Okay. That is super cool. Thank you so much. Um, let's see what else do we have? Um, so you'll have, you'll have links in the show notes. Actually, it looks like you have, uh, one of the links you'll have in there is that teals k12.org. Yes. So that's the main one that's, uh, branded with teals for the domain. Okay. Um, anything else before we conclude? No. Okay. Perfect. Where can people find you? 
You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. And you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash ytechie. So Carl, it was great chatting with you and uh, definitely have yourself a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Happy holidays to you, Jason. 